Welcome to You, Me, Empathy. Thank you for listening. We would like to remind you that this podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Known as just a silly boy with a feely heart. Please consider supporting the show. Check us out on Patreon or simply leave a review on iTunes. Here is your host and creator of the show, Known Wells. Greetings, feely humans. Welcome to Yumi Empathy. This is episode 50. We've made it to episode 50, which is really cool. I'm really excited by that. There's a dog playing with a toy in the background. And he doesn't give a shit that I'm recording right here. He doesn't care because he's a dog and he's sweet. And I love him. But what I was saying is it's episode 50. And that's great. I can't believe I've done 50 episodes. I hope to do another 500. I hope, I hope to do Yumi Empathy forever. Honestly, I was just talking with a friend um, about the just the future of our creative endeavors. And I, you know, I want to continue growing this show. I want to do more and more. I want to challenge myself and have really meaningful conversations always. And, you know, maybe someday I have a live show. Wouldn't that be sweet? I would love that. That would be amazing. So future iterations of Yumi Empathy, who knows? But this is episode 50. Another cool stat is that we're going to get uh, this month, we're going to get past 20,000 downloads for Yumi Empathy, which is amazing. It means people are listening, people are connecting, and <laughs> dogs are playing, and neurotic, and it's okay. The people are loving this show, and I just want to thank you for that. That is is awesome. I, I wouldn't uh, be here continuing to do this if you guys didn't connect with it. And so thank you. Thank you for that. Today's show, episode 50, is about how addiction is not a moral failure. Tony, the therapist, and I are back to explore the relationship of trauma to addiction, the variability of importance and importance of human resilience. Resilience is something we talk a lot about on this podcast. I think it's an important one, especially in terms of addiction. And then again, why addiction is a disease and not a result of moral failure or lack of willpower. We talk a lot about uh, addiction, sex addiction, uh, social media addiction, process-based addictions, substance-based addictions, all that stuff today on episode 50 with Tony the Therapist. So thanks for being here. And before I go, please give us a follow on on Instagram and Twitter at Yumi Empathy. We also have a great Facebook group over at facebook.com slash groups slash Yumi Empathy. Go over and join and join the conversation. Uh, and please leave ratings and reviews in iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or Google. I am going to read a new review today. This is the subject of which says, we need more feely humans. I couldn't agree more uh, by Jester A. Uh, this review says, quote, podcast host Known's vision is brilliant. Everyday people talking about mental health in an empathetic and enlightening way. We need more voices like this, end quote. Thank you, Jester A. I agree. 
we need more voices like this. All of these voices, all of the voices that are on this show, on Yumi Empathy, all of you guys are doing the work. Uh, you're even doing the work listening to this podcast. Because the hope is that it maybe impacts you and it, it allows you to see the, the, the fruitful quality of opening up and being vulnerable. And maybe you can bring that into your own relationships and your own life. And that's, that's, that's the amazing thing about this. So thank you for leaving that review. And if you want to leave a review, go over to Apple Podcasts, search for Yumi Empathy, and give me five stars and leave a, a review I can read here in the intros. That would be lovely. Thank you. I love you forever. Okay, let's get to the episode. Episode 50 on how addiction is not, I repeat, not a moral failure with Tony the Therapist. You, Me, Empathy, a podcast about exploring the struggles we face in our day-to-day lives as humans trying to get by on this wondrous and overwhelming pale blue dot. The intent of You, Me, Empathy is to talk openly without judgment about our neuroses, our mental illnesses, our shared anxieties and worries, to create a dialogue that is vulnerable and deeply human and empathetic, and to share that dialogue with others to inspire emotional and cognitive collaboration and insight so we can, hand-in-hand, Break down the stigma that make us feel shame and guilt for struggling, for feeling our feelings, for being human. Yumi Empathy is a safe, friendly space designed to inspire the beauty in each of us. Today I'm here with the man himself, Mr. Tony Time. Hey. Hello. What a great introduction. Yeah. You're welcome. Yeah, well, Um, thank you. That was nice. How are you? I'm all right. How are you? I'm all right. It's good to see you again. Good to see you. It's been a few weeks. We haven't even just hung out, have we? I mean, we haven't. Um, not since the the house move, and I feel bad about it. Oh yeah, so I'm feeling used me, shame. You used me to move you. <laughs> that's true, and that's it. Tony is very helpful wow. in our move. Um, he's got big old muscles, you guys. Oh well, brain muscle. Bra- oh, and python muscles. Well, holy smokes! He that's likes bad. to cream his lats. He likes to mash those delts. He likes to. T- <laughs> Whatever, whatever else you do, blast those tries. <laughs> uh, uh, I think lately it's just uh, blast the dessert bar, and uh, oh, you know, since it's been the Thanksgiving weekend, yeah, it's so holidays, you know, holidays, uh, you deserve it. Well, I appreciate it. We all deserve it. Well, I'm happy to have you here today. We're going to be talking about addiction. Yes, and uh, but before we do, let's uh, let's hear it from you. Your little spiel. My little spiel. So, um, yeah, my name is Anthony Romeike, and I am a licensed marriage and family therapist in the state of California, uh, licensed by the Board of Behavioral Sciences, and my license number is LMFT47805. And I have a private practice in the beautiful city of Newport Beach, California, 
However, today I'm I'm spending it with Known out in um, I call it hillbilly country <laughs> out here and. Right Beautiful. after this, we're going to make some moonshine we're together. Some, yeah. Where's that teal? You got that steel? Was that teal or steel? or I don't know. What um, but I know a spittoon. A spittoon? Do you, we, do you have a spittoon? No, I wish. Oh, okay. I should get one, though. But this is absolute gorgeous, like, horse country out here. Yeah. I yeah. mean, I feel like the 30-minute drive out here, I've just transferred back to the Old West. Yeah, totally. It's, it's, it is a... A, a unique pocket of Orange County because when you think Orange County, you think like everything looks the same, you know, right? And, and generally does. It generally does, right. but there are pockets like this that are really quite stunning. This is, I mean, yeah. it is absolutely just purely gorgeous out here. So yeah. it's nice to it's nice to get away yeah. from the city and yeah, and, and get out here to record. So well, we're gonna we're gonna work soon to make this your and Francie's spa a little yes, vacation. That's right. We got a little. We have I some requests know, put in. A spa in the backyard, <laughs> right. you know, all these things that Francie and Tony want. Um, we, do. we want this to be our little weekend getaway when well, you guys take off for little vacations. I want that too, sincerely. I well, mean, yeah. I would love that. You guys It has our treehouse coming with, with the slide <laughs> in through the roof. Well, that's that's more of like the five-year, five maybe year plan? 10-year plan, right. you know. So, listeners, um, we, we have this, tr- he's got a tree outside of the house that's... Uh, is that an what kind of tree is that? It's an oak tree. It's an oak tree. Yeah, hundred plus years old. Yeah, I mean, absolutely, just gorgeous massive. and massive, right next to the house. And we were looking at it a few weeks back, and we realized it was the perfect place to put a tree house. Yeah. And as we were recognizing that, as as well, I was going to call us boys because we're still boys at we heart. We are right? boys. We're, we're boys at heart. And we were looking at this, and we're like, you know, you could actually put a, a slide. That would go from the treehouse through the roof. Tony's grinning into the ear house. To ear I am right grinning now. into. I mean, this is like a childhood, like yeah, yeah, total fantasy. Here, well, I so. do. I mean, no joke. I do want to build an amazing treehouse. Oh, someday. And, um, yeah, and it's a perfect tree to do yeah, it. Yeah, and a slide could right. be doable. And a slide's very doable, yeah, right? Amazing. Yeah, I, I need some sort of engineering help, probably. <laughs> probably, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> you, you may know. need a structural engineer. Yeah. And, yeah, but um, but this is the perfect place to do it. So yeah. it's also the perfect place to record you, me, empathy. It really is because it's such a tranquil setting. Yeah. Um. Again, it feels like you're in a spa resort retreat kind of area. Awesome. And uh, so it it very much sets up a, a wonderful just mood. Yeah. And the ambiance is just kind of ideal. So yeah, our listeners can picture candles. <laughs> yoga music <laughs> dogs uh, snoozing dogs in corners snoozing around us and yeah. um on a on a just absolutely beautiful picturesque sunday afternoon so yeah. yes that's the scene that, that is our scene well today as i mentioned we're going to be talking about addiction this is the follow-up to my chat with robin mcintosh of work it health if you guys haven't checked out work it health go do that it's at workithealth.com. They are an online addiction treatment company, and they're doing some really interesting things, kind of combating maybe some of the more, I don't know, inefficient processes in like treatment uh, uh, in the sort of traditional medical sense, which is really neat and interesting. So Robin obviously has a history of being an addict herself. She is an addict. And we had a great conversation. So if you haven't listened to that, please go back and listen to my conversation with Robin. uh, Because today we're going to talk about that a little bit and then explore alcoholism, addiction, all that, all that stuff. So 
my first question for you, Tony, is, well, you're a sex addiction specialist. So, yeah, I'm certified as a sex addiction therapist uh, through the International Institute of Trauma and Addiction Professionals. So that's um, work I've done for many years. And, um, and it's, yeah, it's, it's a process or behavioral addiction, uh, as opposed to a substance-based addiction. Um, but as Robin mentioned, you know, obviously these fall under the, the category of addiction, um, you know, for a lot of the same reasons that a substance abuse addiction would. So, so what are, what are some of the, what's your, well, in, in that training, in the, well, just in your, in your experience, sure. what, what's, what's your overlap with addicts um well what's fascinating i think the thing and and robin alluded to this was you know the the overlapping uh what's the word i'm looking here for the thing that ties all addictions together is the concept not the concept the fact that these things become out of control is probably the best way to talk about it and the fact that when you look at whether it's a substance-based problem or whether it's a process-based problem and, and again for referencing what is a process-based, uh, you're looking at a behavioral addiction. So uh, Robin had mentioned eating disorders as, yeah. as one. Uh, gambling would be another. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, these are the ones that we tend to think of when we think of behavioral addictions, process-based addictions. Um, you can think of it as over-exercising. I mean, you mm. know, so so in a sense, these are ne- not necessarily things that we're ingesting into our systems, you know, to get a particular uh, neurochemical uh, experience, but we're getting a neuro-based experience off the process or the behavior, right. and that's actually what we're we're getting high off of, so to speak. So, process-based or behavioral-based addictions, like substance-based addictions, the the usually one of the def- defining criteria that that you're going to identify as problematic is when something finally becomes out of control, and that's uh, one of the things Robin had alluded to in her process of, of starting. I think it was in her. I think she had referenced that being part of the 12-step community right. was one yeah. of the things in which she started getting a language for an mm-hmm. understanding of what was happening for her in her life. And and again, generally, most people will recognize that, that something is an addiction when they recognize finally that this is out of control. I, I, you know, I've, I've completely lost my ability to use or participate in this particular behavior um, without having some form of moderate use, right? It's it's it is now it's in control of me. Impacting my life, it's absolutely and, impacting. Yeah. That's the other thing that we look for. What's what's the impact that this has on somebody's life? And and once again, what is it that we no longer have control over? But this thing has control over me. So basically, right. it's running the show. I'm no longer running the show. Right. My life is now based around whatever this particular thing is. My life is now based around eating, or my my life is based around sex, or my life is based around, uh, you know, getting opioids, or my you know alcohol, or you know, so you know, put in whatever type of behavior you may be dealing with. But this is you know, and then the idea of I can't stop, right? Mm-hmm. You know, this thing has so much taken control of my life that I've had multiple failures to try and stop, and I've not been able to stop, or. I, you know, I think Robin again had mentioned that she thought she was going to make alcohol, you know, minimum amounts of alcohol part of her daily experience, right. recognizing <laughs> the insanity of that, yeah, and ultimately recognizing that um, such part of addict thinking, right? You know, how do I just, if I have just a little of this, I can, I can manage that. Um, and manageability is, again, one of the most significant problems with this is we don't have manageability. It has truly become unmanageable, which is obviously part of the 12 steps, so... Can you be addicted to anything? 
Um, you know, I, you know, it's a good question, and I think you know, part of me wants to say yes for the fact that again, if you're looking at the defining criteria of of what makes an addiction. And ultimately, it's what going back to what we've said already, right? It's unmanageability. It's where it's having a negative impact on your life, mm-hmm. um, where it's you're having issues of tolerance, and therefore you're having to increase whatever it is you've been doing. You're needing higher intensity, you know, so there's more intensity seeking, higher risk. Mm-hmm. And so, if we're trying to identify something in our life where maybe those are some of the symptoms that we're having, I mean, there's the potential to say maybe something's addictive. I think one of the things we're hearing more and more about now is internet-based addictions, right? Right, social media. Social media and gaming. Gaming, yeah. You know, these are some of the the things that are really a part of our um, social community that we're being, you know, told about or becoming more aware of is how much this is taking over our lives, right? So again, if we're to look at the addiction criteria and unmanageability, tolerance, withdrawal, in, you know, intensity seeking, uh, continuation, despite negative consequences in our lives, you know, these are the types of criteria that we're going to apply to something to really try and evaluate, are we addicted to this particular behavior? And then you get into a whole discussion about what are the neurochemicals in the brain? You know, is it activating the dopamogenic reward system? Which again is a you know a natural based system that we have in our brain that's uh, learning based that helps us repeat behaviors so we do get this wonderful feel good response in our brain through the release of dopamine um, which basically helps us go back and react or reenact these same behaviors right um, but if we become you know basically we if we're ultimately abusing that system, right? And we're going back to it pathologically again and again and again and again and again. Then we start to develop a tolerance issue with that part of the brain. Yeah. That's why you hear, you know, Harris Whittle's friend, for instance, uh, and Stephanie talked about this in her book. Um, shoot. Uh, everything is awful and wonderful right i think yeah. something like that she talked about it her brother harris yeah uh heroin addict right uh but he started with i think like um pills and then he and then he moved to heroin yeah. or something it was just like right she explained it like he wasn't getting high anymore and right. he needed to be high more and so he ramped it up he ramps it up and you know if you talk with an addict that's what they'll say it's you know the first First time, second time, third, you know, but early in on your substance use or behavioral experience, you know, the high that you get from those first few times, if not the first time, is so exciting that you end up chasing that same experience, you know, to, to see yeah. if you can get that that same rush uh, and, you know, that you got on that first experience. And, you know, so most addicts end up chasing that first time experience or the first few times. And again, you know, that's why more, right? You know, and the brain's, a, you know, it, I mean, you know, the brain's a smart thing, right? I mean, it it naturally reduces the dopamine it produces as we are, artif- not artificially, well, artificially if we're using substances, but if we're constantly activating that part of the brain and so it's producing and releasing all this dopamine, the brain starts to, you know, basically regulate that process, starts producing less. Mm-hmm. And so we need more. And so we start chasing more. And or increasing either a behavior or maybe increasing the, the amount of drug that we're using or the type of drug. 
And, and that's where you'll see escalation, you know, right. that, that's with right. addiction and, and with sex addiction, you know, one of the things that I'll see quite often is an escalation of, beha- you know, of a behavior. So where something that worked for X amount of time no longer works, now we need something more intense, more risky, more exciting. And so there's movement into that area. And, you know, and again, if this occurs over many years, then you can really see some significant escalation of risky behaviors and, and ultimately, um, behaviors that may come with some very severe negative consequences. Yeah. So what have you had patients come to you say, I think I'm having issues with addiction or I think I'm an addict. Rarely. Rarely. Okay. Very rarely. Um, I would say most often, uh, you know, gosh, maybe 90% of the time they've come into therapy for other presenting reasons most often. And again, if it's sex addiction based more often than not, They'll come in because of relational problems, uh, meaning somehow they've been discovered. Maybe it was a wife or a you know a husband or a spouse partner that's discovered the behavior, mm. and it's threat of loss of the relationship that brings them in. Gotcha. Or if it's substance based, the same thing. I mean, you know, ultimately it's usually the loss of a potential relationship. I see. Which is the catalyst to coming into therapy. More often than not, the addict is fairly invested in wanting to protect the addiction. If, you know, if they haven't fully hit bottom. Right. More often than not, they're, they're still They're really, going to try to repair the relationship. They in, want to repair the in relationship some in some way and still hold on to the addiction. Yeah. And so, they usually come in, you know, fully willing to invest themselves in repairing the relationship and not losing, you know, that particular person in their life. Um, and this is, you know, usually this kind of honeymoon phase where they come in and they, they're just so motivated they're talking, you know, using all the right words, and they're talking about recovery and abstinence and, and you know, looking for sobriety, um, you know, but really it's to repair and save the relationship. Mm. And so, it always becomes extremely fascinating in this process. And, and, and I think one of the predictors of success is when does the addict make the transition, but, you know, from I'm doing this for you to I'm doing this for me. Oh, interesting. And what I tend to see is if somebody's heavily invested in in the recovery because of another person, then that's a recovery really built on sand. Mm. You know that that's not one really built on a you know on a very stable foundation. And what I'll tend to see is there's there's a greater propensity for relapse when again somebody's doing it solely to save a relationship because it's coming from like I want this for you, or it's coming from like that person saying, "Hey, you need to change up." Right. And he's like, oh, I can, I can get there, but it's not right. like really addressing the truth. <laughs> it's not really addressing the truth. Yeah. Well, yeah, you know what's fascinating about this for me in, in the treatment of this, um, and this is where I have a tremendous amount of empathy for these clients, um, and, and I really mean that. I mean, I, my heart just, when I put myself in their shoes and I, and I think about what they're facing, um, empathy is, is just the best descriptor of the process that I know they're going through that I experience with them is there is so much fear of loss. And, and so often I would say with the people that I treat that um, they're very young selves, you know, that the, there is a part of them that fears the loss of a relationship so desperately that usually this was part of why they use in the first place. Mm. And, you know, again, whether that's substance space or whether that's another process or behavioral addiction or whether that's sex addiction, I usually find that that there is so much um, 
emotional distress, psychological distress, relational distress around potential loss, that this is what they've been covering up oh, interesting. in so much of their use over the history, in addition to just you know, um, fairly significant problems with emotional regulation. Mm. So, you know, meaning their own capacities to manage and cope with distressing emotions, fears, psychological distress, life challenges. Um, these are usually people, um, and again, you know, not everybody, but but I would say there's a fair amount of, of addicts who really struggle in this area. You know, they really, really struggle to be able to uh, kind of self-manage all their emotional states, right? Or there's a, you know developmental deficits that have never been accomplished or successfully you know worked through, and so they really can't handle relationships in a healthy way. Um, and you know one of the you know uh, key phrases in the addiction world is uh, you know we don't take uh, or we don't have relationships we take hostages. Mm. And, you know, and it, it's kind of in that, um, I don't know how to be in relationship with you, but I need you. Right. And so, when when they're threatened with the loss of that relationship, it is such a difficult time. And, and this is where I want to be really careful and cautious of potential suicidal ideation. Because from the addict's perspective, you know, they might be losing the only thing that, that they're hold, you know, that they've been holding to. Right. And they fear losing in spite of, or in addition to the drugs. And be, so, really, they're being faced with two of the most threatening things that they could potentially ever be faced with, which is, I no longer have the thing or substance that I'm so dependent on. And the thing I feared the most leaving is now threatening to leave. Hmm. Wow. That's and a lot to face. It's a bunch. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it is so much. And and then here's the extra challenge for these people is that as they're now in the process of trying to get, you know, some sobriety underneath them, which again, sobriety is the you know no longer using the chemical or the behavior that you've used in the past that has become unmanageable and out of control. But what you also want to look for is, are there any other co-occurring addictions? You know, is there something else the person is also using? And usually you can't tell until one thing stops um, to also evaluate, you know, do they abuse sugar? You know, I mean, you know, is this person also a sugar addict? Um, is that person also an energy drink addict as I hold up my own rock star? Um, this podcast is not sponsored by <laughs> Rockstar rock Energy. Um but you know, so so what is it? You know, is it you know uh, co-occurring marijuana use? Is it which is? Do you find that to oh, be so prevalent? A, yeah, a common thing. Very common co-occurring thing. addictions. Almost always. Oh. I mean, it's it's almost always. It's it's extremely extremely rare if there's only a single addiction occurring. Interesting. Um, usually, it's what we call the you know the whack-a-mole you know uh, kind, of, kind yeah. of syndrome if people are familiar with the game whack-a-mole it's kind of like as soon as you get one addiction knocked down another one pops up and maybe it's been there but now there's just greater awareness of it but again there's also what you're looking for in terms of co-occurring issues is you know co-occurring mental health based issues so mm -hmm. are you looking at an underlying bipolar disorder are you looking at an underlying depressive disorder anxiety disorder um, personality disorder you know is there something else that's co-occurring in this person's life uh, in which they've also been medicating. And so, mm. so sobriety is so necessary. And again, that's the absence of use. Recovery uh, 
to give the listeners uh, maybe some education on the, the wording or language of, of addiction, recovery is, is the process of recovery. So that's the process in which you're engaged in. Uh, sobriety is, is the actual abstinence of the behavior or substance. Okay. So when we talk about sobriety and we're looking to get a person sober from all their addictions, that's again when you're going to really evaluate for what else is happening, maybe on a mental health based type of issue. Mm. Um, and again, what we've already been talking a little bit about is, is what are those underlying maybe attachment issues, you know, or, you know, fear-based um, type of early childhood trauma. Um, you know, what else is happening here in which, again, is going to create a lot of, a lot of uh, emotional, psychological, and relational distress for the person presenting. So, I was going to ask you about the trauma part of it. Is, do you see uh, a relation to early childhood trauma and addiction? Absolutely. Um, absolutely. A lot of trauma-related addiction. And also a lot of neglect-related addiction, mm. um, you know, just in which the person, you know, just experienced a significant amount of neglect, you know, growing up in childhood. So there wasn't that parental investment or caretaker investment, you know, in which the person, again, had a relationship in which there was safety and there was, a, you know, empathic attunement, nurturing, and, uh, you know, just that emotional involvement, you know, mm. that helped the person uh, learn to emotionally regulate learned um, healthy self-esteem, healthy sense of self, learned connection, you know, what it actually means to f or what it actually feels like from a sensory-based place um, to be connected to another human being and knowing that other human beings are available, you know, yeah. for our emotional needs and for our processing and our sense of safety. So, I see quite a bit of neglect as well. But Going back to trauma, no, absolutely. You know, if, if we've experienced early childhood trauma or, trial, or trauma in life, and, you know, again, um, how do we define trauma? And we talk about trauma is there's little T traumas, and there's big T traumas. And again, a big T trauma might be if somebody's experienced a rape or if somebody's experienced uh, war, if somebody's experienced um, traumatic car accident or yeah. little T's are possibly, you know, parents who never got along well, you know, and there was a lot of fighting in the home. Uh, little T trauma just might be, you know, uh, some of the mild, you know, emotional neglect that may have been experienced or bullying, mm -hmm. um, you know, so some of the things we may, may not look at and just go, wow, how did you survive? But emotionally, they may have been really significant and you know, significantly impactful. Right. And again, trauma in and of itself is just anything that, you know, is greater than our capacity to basically work through emotionally what happened to us, you know, so it's literally, it's literally more than our emotional system can, um, manage and so we don't deal with it we just mm. kind of shelve it and we just put it away and we never actually work through it and so that can vary yeah you know for for everybody i mean everyone's got different tolerances in terms of what they're able to manage in terms of something like that that's interesting i i, I like the way you put it in terms of how each of us are differently like so you and i could be different in terms of like um emotional intelligence ability like emotional right. regulation yeah. i mean obviously i'm way better at it of course well i mean it's a good thing. <laughs> i'm just kidding <laughs> uh but like you know and it's interesting like how uh trauma can impact someone uh differently if 
you know, someone's, you know, if this person's emotional regulation and intelligence is higher than another's. Like, that's so fascinating to me. And, and it is, you know, and, and I think, you know, again, as therapists and, and, you know, treating a clinical population, the thing to be aware of is, yep, you could have two people come in who, who have experienced the same type of trauma, let's say a horrendous car accident. And it's not enough to just say, well, I have to treat this trauma survivor. Because, you know, two people may uh, respond to that completely different. You know, you may yeah. have com- two completely different responses. And, you know, there are so many factors that I think that go into that. Um, so, you can't just jump to the conclusion that I'm working with two trauma survivors and, and they're going to need trauma-based treatment. Um, right. Somebody, you know, and again, I think there was a, a study I think we've talked about on this podcast before called the ACE studies. Oh, yeah. And it was, it was by… Reference. Yeah, it was by the Kaiser body keeps the score. Permanente, right, yeah. and, and Bessel. We cannot. Get oh, Bessie. Po- oh, Bessie. Oh, Bessie. Oh, Bessie. <laughs> Our friend. I've Bessel got numer- numerous listeners of Yumi Empathy have uh, reached out to me and said they are blown away by that book because are they? we've, That's we've so mentioned great. it on the show. Well, I'm excited because yeah. it's it's a phenomenal book. Yeah. And um, But the ACE studies, you know, were, were such an amazing, just, you know, so much great information and data about what early childhood, you know, trauma and abuse or neglect. So, in the ACE study, they, they studied these children. Uh, studied adults. Um, so, actually, it was adults that were studied. Oh, I thought they were... So they studied children, and then they met up with the adults, like, 20 years later or something. I saw something yeah, like it was actually the- adults who were surveyed on their childhood experiences. Oh, I see. Gotcha. So, and then, you know, they accumulated that data, and they looked at that person's overall, you know, psychological functioning, medical history to, to start to kind of ascertain what was the impact um, on their early life in, you know, t- in now in terms of current mental health functioning and also, uh, you know, physical and medical functioning. Right. So, what was the impact? And, and recognizing that there was a significant, significant impact. And so, you know, so understanding that, you know, again, if somebody perhaps had a, you know, fairly good childhood, you know, they, they had emotionally available parents and there was enough resources, you know, there was always food on the table, there was a roof over the head, there was consistency, um, again, you know, financial stability, parental involvement and care and nurturance and guidance, and something traumatic happens to that person, that person might potentially come through the trauma a lot better than somebody, for instance, who maybe, um, you know, didn't have parental involvement. Maybe there was a significant amount of neglect or abuse, or perhaps there was poor financial resources or not enough resources. And so, you know, everything was always very, you know, challenging. And, you know, it was always a real fight to have the basic of necessities. And you have a trauma occur to that person. And again, they may have, they potentially may have a, a greater traumatic response. Or what if they've had multiple traumas through their life? Right. And, and now they've faced another, another trauma. Um, what about the cumulative effect of trauma, you know, versus just maybe a singular trauma? So, again, it's, it's really important for people to understand and not judge themselves or others based on their, their, or their response to a trauma because so many factors go into it. You know, there are so yeah. many factors that go into it. So Yeah, I think that's a really good point because I, I think we do have a tendency to compare. Like, obviously, I made the joke earlier that I have a higher, like, right. well, I mean, but it stems from this, this feeling that like, yeah, of course, like we, we want to do that naturally. We want to compare. We want to like right. say, oh, I've, I'm more resilient or something. But sure. like the truth is that, 
we all, all of our emotions are valid and, and, and important. And, and if we recognize that there is value in growing our emotional intelligence right. and capability, um, just knowing that growing it will allow me to maybe be more resilient to trauma is, is amazing, like motivator. But the fact right. remains that like, of course, we're all different and no one right. is better, <laughs> right. better than the other. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, better is just a, you know, term I would like to just get rid of yeah, completely. Get rid of it. Uh, good, bad, better, you know, these types of, of terminology, I think has such a negative impact on, on this process or comparing, like you yeah. said, but you know, a word that you you've used a couple times in the last couple of minutes, and I want to I want to jump in on it because it's just so important. Is, is this idea of resilience, mm. and it really is about what is our capacity for resilience that is the difference, and so it's it's the exact word that we would use in describing that for each person is what is somebody's emotional resilience, right, mm-hmm. or psychological resilience? What is somebody's capacity to tolerate? you know, this thing versus, you know, somebody who, again, may have come from a different experience. And, um, and again, making sure that we not judge what our particular level of resilience is. Um, and this is where compassion is a really important, you know, necessary step in, in either self-compassion or, again, hopefully getting that from a, from a um, mental health caregiver provider because wherever you are is where you are. Yeah. And, you know, and, and that's, that's where you're at and you know and let's meet you there and and the healing that can take place as a result of that is a great way to then increase like you said somebody's you know capacity for for their resilience Mm -hmm. and that's how we heal yeah you know so yeah that's well said where where are we at as a system as a medical system with addiction recovery addiction treatment you know obviously robin works for work at health right that's that's doing some interesting different things yeah. in terms of uh, allowing people to get treatment for addiction uh, in a way that's maybe less intrusive or less financially like impactful. Certainly, right. absolutely. And where where are we at? Like, what's your gauge on that? Yeah, I, you know, I, f- I feel like we're at a really significant place of transformation in recovery and in, in the treatment of addiction. Uh, for a few factors, I think one is people have so many more options now than they had in the past. Mm. Uh, f- and I think that's due to a few things. I think one is the internet, you know, and the, and the simple fact that there is so many more uh, options, you know, that I think people have now and the capacity to research and right. to ultimately find what's best for them. And and I think it's also progressive, you know, I mean, I, I think just having different uh treatment options is progressing the field because I think people are, you know, treatment centers are trying to have to set themselves apart mm. because um, they're kind of a dime a dozen, you know, and, and Robin referenced that. Yeah. It's particularly where we're at here in Orange County, California or in Southern California. I mean, you, 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 you know, it's overused, but I mean, there's almost a treatment center on every corner, particularly if it's Costa Mesa, Newport beach and a lot of the beach communities, um, they are heavy with treatment centers let me interrupt real sure. quick. Why do you think that is? Well, I think for a couple reasons. I mean, I think one is, you know, if you're going to have a treatment center, you know, oh, sure. would you like to have it in, 
you know, Needles, California, or, <laughs> you know, would you like to have it in Newport Beach? Yeah, that makes sense. Um, yeah, nice beach setting. Right. Yeah, sure. You know, I think it's I think relaxing. it's relaxing. I think yeah. the setting is a significant part of healing. Sure. Uh, you know, I think our environment does play a, a very positive role in tranquility and calming. And, and again, I think if you are going into recovery, it's it's important that you find a very, you know, as much as possible, you know, a beautiful, quaint, you know, kind of environmental setting. Uh, you know, no different than we referenced earlier, right? For us being out here in the in the canyon doing this wonderful podcast, or or if we're going to yoga, you know, how, just how much the setting plays and in, in the environment plays mm. an important role in our relaxation and our healing. I think you know, recovery centers do the same thing. So, um, and I interrupted. I, yeah, no, and Sorry. and I just I think you know, out here in Southern California. California, California as a whole. I mean, we're a pretty progressive state. Mm. I think we've been progressive. And so, I, and I don't think we've had as much stigma here related to addiction treatment or mm. addiction as a whole. I think uh, we're more willing here to be able to talk about it. I think we're more willing here to be transparent. And I think, therefore, we're more willing to have treatment centers. And, you know, so I think it's part of the mm. culture of the area. One of the things I think Robin mentioned, or it was in my conversation with uh, Callie Lux, who I don't think you've listened to that episode yet, but uh, it's a future episode. Callie and I, she was an opioid addict, uh, is an addict. And uh, her or Robin, I forget, mentioned uh, a methadone clinic in Oakland. and. And just the like bars on the windows and the, like right. the you know the the stigma you mentioned right. the stigma like that that's like a maybe a stigma thing like what what is your what are your thoughts on that like why why is there the stigma about addicts and they're criminals right we right. we treat them like criminals right we do I mean I mean for the most part you know in the substance based world particularly uh, I think it's been very criminalized right I mean and again that's part of our actual criminal-based system, right? I mean, as a whole, we treat, you know, addicts as criminals, particularly, you know, because the use of these substances or the accompanying behavior is generally criminal, right? Mm. I mean, the substance itself is is more often than not. I mean, marijuana is now legal, but but otherwise, you know, every other substance is, is illegal as usually some of the co-occurring behaviors, right? Whether it's robbing, burglarly, you know, stealing mm-hmm. and so forth to make sure that there's money. So, yeah yeah well i mean but wouldn't you say there is a component of just stigma like cultural stigma around addiction what like like and what i mean by that is like people saying like oh he's a he's an alcoholic or oh they're doing pills and like I don't know. I get the sense that there's this cultural stigma around people who are addicts who they just need to like snap out of it because they're just, they're, they're losers. Right. Sure. Or whatever. You know, I get that sense. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, the good news with that, at least what I've seen is, you know, and again, that might be partly due to being here in Southern California, but I feel like we've really turned a significant corner in not having that kind of perspective that's good I, I mean i think for years you know it was uh oh gosh i mean you know if we want to go back what 60 70 years i mean you know we the hobos and the winos you know when we used to think about somebody sure and back then i mean i think it was viewed so much as a moral failure you know that these people were just a moral failure i think that's that's probably where 
what I'm thinking of is like it's a moral component. There's this moral I idea. I think there used to be yeah. a huge moral component yeah. you know, in the way in which these things were judged and, and stigmatized for sure. Yeah. And, and I think that's why, you know, one of the things that was, I think, really helpful, you know, in the last 20 to 25 years, 20 years probably, is when we came out with, uh, the, you know, a disease model of addiction. Mm. And I think, right. I think that changed people's perspective. And I think that had a, I think that was culturally significant in helping people understand that, well, this isn't moral failure. This isn't a problem of willpower. Um, and, and, and I could, I'd like to punctuate that these are not moral failures, people. And, and this isn't an issue of willpower. Um, you know, when you understand the neuroscience of addiction, then you really start to understand. And again, I was going to add that, that one of the things I think that has been so progressive in the treatment of, of addiction is neuroscience and understanding mm. the actual neuroscience of addiction. Yeah. And also the learning model of addiction. Uh, there's been some really great research in understanding that, you know, what's the learning model of addiction. So, uh, but again, going back to this idea of disease, you know, I think, you know, 20, 20 some odd years ago when that became prevalent that we have a disease model of addiction, I think it started to destigmatize addiction and people were, you know, again, it, we could move away from the idea that it was a moral failure or it was an issue of willpower and that these people really were helpless, you know, and, and that there was a disease based process that was occurring. And that, like any other disease, you know, we needed a real intervention and we needed a real treatment to help these people. I think that's helped. I mean, I, I, I really believe that that has, has turned the corner. Now, in sex addiction, I think it's still different. I, I mean, I think we still need some work in, in that, you know, in that area. In fact, I, you know, it's whether there's a lot of people out there that still aren't really convinced that sex addiction is an actual addiction. Some people, you know, again, I think if you treat it, I think you tend to have a different perspective. I mean, you you see people whose lives are horribly out of control. You've seen people who cannot stop the behaviors they want to stop. Um, you know, one of the you know jokes people will make all the time is like, "Well, hey, if I had to have an addiction, I was just going to reference you yeah, see that in movies. You see it in movies. Yeah. Like, well, I, I want to be a sex addict, right. and, and the reality of that is, no, you don't. You I don't want to be you, any addict. You don't want to be any addict, and and a sex addict, you know, it's it's a horrible life. I mean, this isn't a, a wonderful, um, enjoyable orgasms all the time. Yeah. I mean, you know, you know I mean this this is somebody whose life has become preoccupied. Destroyed. Yeah. Destroyed. Yeah. You know, that that every waking moment, you know, essentially, I mean it varies for, for different people, but you know, their life is now revolving around sex and getting sex or you know, um, you know, chasing some type of high and, and, and they've literally, you know, their life has become this tiny little existence yeah. of just trying to achieve a certain, you know, mood altering experience through a sexual behavior. And every other thing in their life has been destroyed or, or, or neglected yeah. and, and their, their capacity for relational experiences and happiness and connection is just so small. Mm. And so these are horrible lives. I oh, mean, it's terrible. Yeah, yeah. This is not a happy addiction um, or exciting in any way at all. I mean, it's, it's horrible. It's ugly. And, and you even have people that go to jail because of it, you know, yeah. because they've moved from, just addictive behavior into offending behavior again due to escalation and um and you know nobody wants that i mean that's yeah i mean it's it's it makes sense uh what are you saying that there's still a a moral kind of component to the stigma around sex addiction well i think so and and i think there's just there's some unbelievability Mm. you know that sex can actually be 
addictive. Hmm. Um, you know, and you know, one of the things I try to educate people to understand it's, you know, sex like food is one, you know, two of our biological drives that we all have. And it's, it's one of the ways in which we are wired is to repeat sex and we're wired to repeat food. It keeps our species moving on. Yeah. And so, you know, there is a wiring system within our bodies and our brain designed to continue in those behaviors. And that's this dopamine based reward system. Right. And, and that's part of the learning model of addiction is that, you know, we do have these things that we, because they're so pleasurable, will continue to do. But for some people, the, the pleasure seeking and chasing of this becomes so preoccupying that it's all their life becomes. And so I think, you know, again, I think that's part of what our community um, and our culture needs to understand that, um, again, th- this is a horrible life. This is, this is not one of, of enjoyability and just hedonism. Yeah, you know, in pleasure seeking because it's it's not. Yeah, where can people go to learn more about sex addiction? Or have you read any good books that help, like maybe distig- like break down a little bit of that stigma and helps people understand that sex addiction is a real addiction? Yeah, no, there's there's a lot of uh, really tremendous great resources out there. Um, Patrick Carnes is you know kind of like the the grandfather of sex addiction treatment and um, and really, you know, identifying the disorder. And he's the person who um, is part of the uh, International Institute of Trauma and Addiction Professionals, of which I was trained. And so, he's the one that came up with the uh, treatment, you know, okay. in which I've been trained under. So, if people look up Dr. Patrick Carnes, C-A-R-N-E-S, um, you know, his his first book was called Out of the Shadows, and that was kind of the, the first book that really ever came out on the subject, you know, that really brought this into the culture, you know, of, right. of what sex addiction really is. And, um, you know, there's uh, Rob Weiss, um, W-E-I-S-S, has a great simple book. It's called Sex Addiction 101. It's a great resource for people who just want to get a great kind of overview of what sex addiction is. Great. Um, and then, gosh, what, you know, and then, I mean, you know, any web search will, will bring up thousands of great articles and there's there's a lot of good resources on that so great great well uh that that was good i think we learned a lot about addiction sex addiction you know the trauma of it emotional regulation yeah anything else you wanted to say on the subject gosh i mean this is truly one of those subjects that you know we could tackle hours i mean there's there's so many different um components i think that yeah. go into addiction and totally. addiction treatment and but um but no yeah yeah i think we've i mean i think we did a good thirty thousand foot overview is that what they say <laughs> yeah well we'll 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 be back here yeah again. we can we'll always back dig here into again. this and before we go i wanted to uh mention because uh i posted to you and i shared it with you yeah uh, the lovely review from lauren michelle oh, on oh, my itunes goodness. and that put a uh, smile on my face. I mentioned it in a previous episode, so I wanted to shout out Lauren again. She's, she gave us this lovely review in iTunes, and she mentioned toward the end that uh, she takes notes from your your notes, I your, know, your was... insights, and said she'd love to have you as a therapist. That she was... lives in Florida, uh, so that, that won't work, but again... Just, very nice. And yeah. I wanted to give you the opportunity to say thanks. Yes. No, I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm not kidding. I put a big smile on my face and, and I, it stayed with me, I think, for some time because, 
you know, when you and I record these and we talk about it all the time off the air, but I mean, I mean, this is so much fun. I mean, I love when we get together and we record these episodes and, and I love being able to provide the education that we provide. And, and I love that you provide the community and the forum for people to talk about all the things that they get to talk about. And I mean, you know, for me, again, empathy is just such an amazing, uh, you know, something in terms of the, the, the human experience that is such a big part of the work that I do, but it's something I think as a culture we're so desperately in need of, yeah. right? You know, right now, as uh, particularly because I think, again, if you know, empathy isn't just about feelings, right? I mean, although you know, we're a big, you know, that's a lot of what we do here is creating a safe environment for people to share whatever feelings they're having, but you know, again, this idea of empathy of really being able to understand what is it that other people are going through, right? And to be able to put ourselves into the shoes of other people and um, allow them to feel known in that, you know, to, wow. Hey, hey that's me. That's you. <laughs> to feel known by known. Yeah. Um, but to be, you know, to know that we're listening, to know that we care and yeah. to know that this is, this. there's no judgment in what we do. And and um, so being able to create that safety for people and that community is is just so important. So, what I meant to say by this is, you know, we get the wonderful pleasure of spending time together, putting these incredible episodes uh, together, talking about subjects we're both passionate about, and um, and it goes out into the and thousands of people thousands get to of people listen and, and be affected by right. it and, and relate and say, oh my gosh. Right. But we don't get that. We don't know how this is impacting people generally. And so... To get a review like that for us um, is wonderful because, again, the, this just goes out to the ether and we just don't tend to know how people are receiving the information. So, when we yeah. get a great review like that, it's um, just just wonderful to know that it's having a positive impact on people. So, Oh, yeah. It's, it's the best. It's why I always say at the top of every show in my intros, please leave reviews because I'm always reading them. They always bring a smile to my face. And it's why I do what's, it's why we do this, right? you know, uh, to hear you say like, wow, I found insight here. Or, right. Wow. I've related to this so much or wow. Like I feel a little less alone. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's that's, the best thing ever. It's the best thing. And, yeah. and again, we throw this out to the ether. We don't know who's, how it's impacting people. And um, so it's great. I mean, it's yeah. just so wonderful that people are getting something from it and Indeed. it's hopefully impacting their lives in, in positive ways. And like you said, if they're just not feeling as alone, if they're feeling more understood or if it's providing an insight um, through our education, then um, I mean, yeah. that's, that's why we do it, like yeah, you said. Absolutely. So. Indeed. Well, listeners, uh, definitely go leave reviews in iTunes or Google Play, Google Podcasts, Spotify. You can listen there and leave reviews and I'll read them on the show, of course. Uh, and go follow Yumi Empathy on social media, at uh, on Instagram, on Twitter, at Yumi Empathy. We have a Facebook group. Uh, it's facebook.com slash group slash Yumi Empathy. And uh, we, have a, we have a merch site. You can buy uh, Yumi Empathy merch. You can get a shirt, a mug, a tote bag, a notepad, all sorts of fun stuff. I'm also working on feely human pins yeah uh, I, I wanted so to say something about that <laughs> go ahead 
I wanted to say, because you were asking for ideas in terms uh, of design. Okay. And all right, all right. You've got to just do a caricature of yourself. I mean... <laughs> really? Yes. No one wants that. They all want that. Who, yes. Who wants that? Everybody. No one wants Everybody. that. Everybody. No one wants to look at this mug. I got a, I got a face I for radio. I want a picture of your face, face for podcast. With feely human. <laughs> I, I don't know. Folks, okay. yes. I'll, uh, I'll noodle on that. Noodle on that, please. I'll noodle on I, that. I do think that's what the world is needing, by the way. <laughs> Well, we'll see. Hey, right. well, if you're still listening, listeners, <laughs> if, you're still with, yeah. <laughs> if you're still with us and you do want my face incorporated in a in a design for a, a pin or something, I mean, yes, you I'm do. not opposed you, you to do. it, but you... Listeners, you, you do. Trust me. Let, let me and Tony know. And I, I'm just curious. I want to gauge the interest here because I feel like Tony is just... High level of interest. <laughs> He's full of shit. No, this is serious. This is awesome. All right, well. What, do you put Scooby on there? I mean, come on. Although Scooby is cute, but he's a dog, so we can't say he's a feely human. No, he's a uh, feely dog, He's though. a feely dog. Feely creature. He is. Well, Tony, thanks again for joining you, Empathy, for Always. another issue of Tony Time. Always my pleasure. Yeah. Thank you. And to you listeners, I'm here, you're here. We're here together on this wayward, overwhelming, awe-inspiring, pale blue dot. We have each other. It's Yumi Empathy.